0: Let's uh, turn to the last chapter of Matthew, chapter 28, in case you're puzzled that uh, we're going to the end of the book. I should explain we did not cover the intervening chapters while you dozed last week. Neither Steve nor I are capable of leaping over 17 chapters in a single bound. But uh, we wanted to go to the end of the book, to the Great Commission, to uh, prepare our thinking ...for the missionary conference that's coming up uh, this weekend. And this chapter, which contains the Lord's mandate, is appropriate for uh, our thinking this morning. In order to get the context of the Great Commission, I'd like to read the entire chapter. Let's begin with verse 1. Now, late on the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave... And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his garment as white as snow. And the guard shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who has been crucified. He is not here. For he has risen, just as he said. Come see the place where he was lying. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Uh, In Matthew 26, we're told that prior to the crucifixion, Jesus told the disciples after his resurrection they were to go to Galilee. And there he would meet them. And so the angel is simply... Uh, restating the Lord's promise. And so the women departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they shall see me. And so the Lord, again, underscores his promise. Now, while they were on their way, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and council together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. Now, Matthew alone of all the gospel writers records this instance, this incident, the bribery of the uh, of the guards. He does so as another evidence of the empty tomb, but I think primarily Matthew has in mind a contrast between the chief priests and the leaders of the Jewish nation in Jerusalem and their attitude toward the Lord. And the attitude of the women and the disciples, the women worshipped, the disciples worshipped. The religious leaders in Jerusalem wanted to do away with him and somehow cover up the, the, uh, the empty tomb. They tried to discredit him. But the eleven disciples proceeded to, to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. They went there to meet him. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. There have been a number of attempts by various commentators to try to explain away this doubt on the part of the eleven disciples. It would seem inappropriate for them at this point. Some say that uh, this is actually an appearance to the 500 of whom Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 15. You know, in describing the various appearances of Jesus, Paul says there was one occurrence where he appeared to 500 brethren at one time. And commentators see that appearance here in this uh, appearance on the mountain because they feel uneasy about the disciples being doubtful. The disciples, they would say, worship the Lord, but there were some among the 500 who were doubtful. But I think we simply have to take this passage at face value. The disciples were uncertain. They were hesitant. They weren't quite sure what came next. Their hopes had been dashed uh, days before, and uh, now with the resurrection, there was renewed hope. But they had no idea what the Lord would ask them to do ne- to do next. And the Lord was always full of surprises, and so they were hesitant. That's actually the meaning of the term. The word that translated doubtful here only occurs one other place in the Gospels, in Matthew 14, where Peter tried to walk on on the water, and he had one eye on the Lord and one eye on the water, and he went down, and the Lord said, why are you so doubtful? The term really means to be, be ambivalent. Uh, it's the way I feel about succotash. Uh, I I hate lima beans. I can't even stand the smell of lima beans, but I love corn. And so I can never make up my mind about succotash. And I think that's the way the disciples felt at this uh, at this point. You know, they just didn't know what to expect. Perhaps the Lord would uh, ask them to go to the cross, as he had. And the next step would be to lay down their lives in martyrdom for the gospel. And, and they were uncertain. They didn't know which way to turn. And I think we simply have to see them that way. They were not strong men at this point. They were hesitant, somewhat doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, he could only say that after the resurrection. It was the resurrection that that affirmed he was indeed the Lord of all the earth, Lord of both heaven and earth. Uh, If you recall, when we looked at the story of uh, of the temptations of Jesus in Matthew 4, there... Satan promised Jesus authority over all the kingdoms of the, of the world if he would merely fall down and worship him. But uh, Jesus refused to take the line of, of least resistance. He took the line of greatest resistance. He went through the cross in order to experience the crown. There was no other way. And uh, thus he was now the Lord, not only of earth, but also of heaven. He's the greatest Every other authority on earth is derived from him. He has it all. He's greater than Herod the Great or Alexander the Great or even Muhammad Ali. He's the greatest. He's the Lord of all. He's the one that everyone's been looking for, you see. He's the Lord that everyone seeks. We all need a Lord. Someone to lead us out of the mess which we've made of our lives. Someone to sort our lives out and... And uh, heal our hurts. Put our families back together again. Make our businesses run properly. Deliver us from the habits that frustrate us and inhibit us. He's the Lord who does all of those things. He's the one that all of mankind is looking for. And therefore, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. That little Preposition or conjunction, therefore, tips us off. The motive for the Great Commission is the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. There are some who would say that the Great Commission itself is sufficient motivation. We simply should obey because the Lord said to do it. And, of course, that's correct. But the Lord never asks us to do anything without adequate reason. The reason we're told to go and make disciples of all nations is because the Lord Himself is the Lord that all nations are looking for. He's the answer to every problem. That's why Jesus says I'm not, or Paul says I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's the power of God unto salvation. It's the only thing that can deliver us from our fear and our guilt and our tendency towards self-destruction. Our selfishness, our defensiveness, our irritability, our violence. Only the Lord can deliver us. And that's why Jesus says we're to bring people into relationship with Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can set us free from all of of these factors. We well know that money doesn't make anyone happy. The only people that believe that are people that don't have it. <laughs> Once you have it, you know, it doesn't make you happy. A marriage in itself doesn't make you happy. Children in and of themselves don't make you happy. Sex as a thing in itself, as a pursuit, a lifestyle, doesn't make you happy. Power in and of itself Doesn't make you happy. Doesn't satisfy you. Doesn't fulfill you. Even love doesn't. Most of us are bottomless tanks when it comes to receiving love. We'll receive and receive and receive, but we're never, no one can fill our love tanks up, and we know it. There's only one who satisfies, and that's the Lord Jesus. And that's why we preach Him, you see. He's the answer. He's the leader that everyone is looking for. Now, that's the motive that sends us out. The mandate is given to us in verses 19 and 20. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The commission is to make disciples, not merely uh, gather a following, following for the Lord Jesus, but place people under his discipline. That's what it means to become a Christian. When one acknowledges Jesus Christ as Lord of all of life, then he becomes a Christian. That's the essence of Christian faith. He's proclaimed as Lord, and we must acknowledge him as Lord. I had uh, the privilege last week of meeting Willie Beeman. We shook hands and we chatted for a little bit. And I came home and I said to Carolyn, guess who I met today? And she was putting around the kitchen. She said, who? I said, Willie Beeman. She said, well, that's great. Who's Willie Beeman? I said, well, Willie Beeman. He's a professional football player. He plays for New York. You don't know Willie? Nope, never heard of Willie Beeman. Well, I know Willie Beeman now. So Brian came in a few minutes later and I said, "Uh, guess who I met today? Willie Beeman. Big deal. Went on downstairs, you know, and finally I cornered Josh and I was able to impress him with the fact that now I knew Willie Beeman and I could walk down the street and if I saw Willie, I'd say, hi, Willie, and he'd say, hi. It occurred to me that that's the way a lot of people think about their Christian life. The Lord is a sort of significant figure, and it's nice to be related to him. But it doesn't really change their life. It doesn't really do anything for them. No one is very much impressed by their knowledge of Jesus Christ because it, it's not real. But if he's Lord, then it's real. And the commission, as Jesus states it, is to bring people into such a relationship with Jesus Christ that something happens to them. Their lives change. That's authentic Christianity. When people become more loving, more thoughtful of others, more sensitive to their needs, more gracious, more forgiving, more tender, more courageous, you see. We are to bring people under the discipline of Jesus Christ. That's the commission. Now, Jesus tells us The ways by which that's accomplished, we are to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teach them to observe all that he commanded us. Actually, in the text, these are two participles and they describe the means by which we disciple. It's as though Jesus said, make disciples of all nations by baptizing them and by teaching them all that I commanded you. The first step is to baptize people. Now, Jesus didn't mean to go out and just arbitrarily start baptizing people mechanically uh, run them through the process. There are people in the past who have done that, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. He is doing what he and the other apostles uh, who wrote Scripture frequently do, using a term to substitute for a process. What he means is this. Proclaim the gospel to people and uh, bring them into a relationship with Jesus Christ and then baptize them as a sign of that relationship. Now, that's what baptism is. It's a symbol of our being placed into Jesus Christ. What more appropriate symbol can you envision? Being buried with him by symbol in the water by baptism and then raised to a new life. That's what it means to be a Christian. And baptism is simply the outward symbol of that inward reality. And it's an important one. We tend to gloss over it, but it's an important symbol. The uh, women at the uh, conference this past weekend uh, baptized two uh, two women in the swimming pool in the Holly Dome, with people standing all around, diving off of diving boards and doing cannonballs right in the middle of the pool while they were while they were baptizing. And I can't think of a greater place to conduct a baptism. That's the way they did it in the early church. We were working with students. We used to baptize them in uh, fish ponds and and lakes and every other place out in front of the unbelieving world where people can give public testimony to what has happened to them. We uh, have these nice little sanitary baptistries now, and, and I think we somewhat missed the point because it's intended to be a public illustration before the world of the reality of our relationship. Now, that's the first step that we take in making disciples. We introduce people to the Lord and then baptize them as a sign of that new relationship. And then secondly... Jesus says, we are to teach them, to observe all that he commanded. Baptism is the foundational act. Teaching builds the structure on the foundation. It's by teaching that we learn what God is like, and we learn what we are to be like, and we learn of God's resources, and we learn how to cope with with life and its problems and its hindrances. That's what Paul means in 2 Timothy, when he says, All Scripture is inspired of God and profitable for teaching, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that, that the man of God may be mature, equipped for every good work. That's what Scripture does for you. And that's why we teach it. And that's why we need to teach our, our new believers, so they can grow up to full stature in Christ. Now, according to Jesus, that's the commission. That's the mandate, to make Disciples of all nations by baptizing and by teaching them. And then a further observation I would like to make about this commission is the men to whom it was addressed. These were a group of essentially unschooled men, theologically naive, not too well-trained. They didn't have any power base. They had never been more than 50 miles away from home, unlettered. But uh, it's to these men that the Lord made this commission. They were hesitant. They were doubtful. They were fearful. They felt ill-equipped. And yet, uh, a few days after this uh, this commission was given, they went down to Jerusalem and they began to preach. And 5,000 responded. They planted a church in Jerusalem, remained there to teach the new believers for a time until uh, persecution broke out over Stephen and the church was expelled from Jerusalem and they went throughout Judea and then up to Samaria and finally to Caesarea which became the, the base for a Gentile mission and from Caesarea they sent out missionaries into Asia Minor and from Asia Minor over into Europe And finally, to Spain, so that by 67 A.D., within 35 years of the resurrection, there was a church in every major urban center in the Roman Empire. And from these centers, the gospel was radiating out out through the provinces. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, and he says, "I, I hear that the gospel is uh, going out from you throughout Macedonia and Achaia, from these centers. The gospel was working its way out into the little villages, and people all over the Roman Empire were finding Christ to be what they were looking for. And we know by 150 A.D. there was a large Christian community in Kerala, India, and all over North Africa, and the gospel continued to spread until today. As I heard Dr. Dave Hubbard say recently, there's not a place... Within uh, there's not a person within fifty mile, uh, more than fifty miles away from a community of believers in the world today. They did it, <laughs> and each generation has the same task: we're to go and make disciples of all nations, and uh, we're to do so even though we're weak and ineffective and ill-equipped. And afraid and hesitant. Carolyn pointed out to me this past week how strange the Lord's uh, procedure was in feeding the five thousand. Um, here were five thousand hungry people, and the Lord said to the disciples, Feed them. And they get their heads together and they start adding up figures, and an egg McMuffin costs a dollar fourteen. And uh, there are 5,000 mouths to feed. That's $5,700. And they started uh, checking their pockets. And between the among the 12, they could come up with $4.35. And yet the Lord said, feed them. And they find a little boy with a bag lunch, and they bring his little brown bag up to Jesus. And they say, this is all we have, but we'll start here with what we have. And the Lord multiplied that and fed the 5,000. And that's where we begin. Start with what we have, the friends that we have, the contacts with unbelievers that we know, the knowledge that's been imparted to us, the literature that's available to us, and we just start right there. Because that's where the Great Commission begins. It's right where you live, right where I live, on our playgrounds, our backyard, across our backyard fences, in your office, in your classroom. Athletic field. Racquetball court. It begins right here. That's where the disciples began. And that's where we begin. So there are two things that I would want you to see from his passage. The first is that mankind is the method. We're it. The Lord doesn't have any other way to get the job done. And secondly, the field is the world. The Lord sent these uh, disciples throughout the entire world because the Lord is the Lord of the world. You see his argument? I have authority over all of heaven and earth. You go, therefore, and disciple the whole earth because I'm the Lord. But the Lord wants us to start here, right where we are. God loves the world. We're supposed to love our neighbor. And if we love our neighbor, then God will give us a vision for the world. I think the reason some of us have no vision for the world is that we have no vision for the man that lives right next door to us or the woman or the children. But if we start there and we fulfill the Great Commission there, then God will open our eyes to the need out there. And it may be to give in order to support someone else that's out there or it may be to go, many from this congregation have gone in times past to other parts of the world, and God may be speaking to you. But what the Lord is saying to all of us now is that we need to begin here and fulfill the Great Commission in our own neighborhood and with our own friends. Now, what I would like to do in the four or five minutes that are left is ask you to share some of your own experiences. Uh, We had a great time in the prayer time in the first service hearing from some people through whom God is working in great ways to bring people to the Lord. And I think it would have been an encouragement to uh, to all of us to hear from you about what God is doing through you. This is not a praise me session. It's a time to praise the Lord because he's the one who makes it all possible. And uh, we're all pretty inept at this business, but uh, it would encourage us to hear what God is doing through your life. Or, no, I'm going to stop there, through your life. Okay. Father, we, uh, we acknowledge that, uh, we're all a bit uneasy and afraid and, uh, uncertain about the way to fulfill this, this command. Uh, and we thank you, though, that you're the one who is with us to the end of the age. It's your strength that makes, makes all things possible. Now make us available to you, Father, today sensitive to people around us, loving to them. Give us opportunities to share with them the thing that makes our lives of value and worth. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. A real privilege to be here and to
1: meet again with you folks. And we think of you many times on the field. wonder how you're doing, and we're always excited to get your letters. And uh, now we're here with you and enjoying this fellowship. Uh, it's a real pleasure, and we're enjoying our Bible study tremendously. And uh, at Sue and Ed's uh, Ariodas house, and uh, we just uh, encourage anyone else that would like to come that we'd love to have you. Uh, the thing that I'd like to share with you is the uh, Acts, the first chapter and the eighth verse. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. The thing that, uh, as a new Christian, uh, I gave my life to Christ about a year after I surrendered myself to the Lord and found in him uh, my every need. And uh, soon afterward, I met Maxine one year later. And uh, along came Ruthie. And then later, while we were in training, with New Tribe's Mission and uh Pennsylvania Nikki also, who is a Pennsylvanian by the way, uh he always wants us to know that he's from Pennsylvania. And uh he roots for all the Pennsylvania football games and everything. So uh with missionary kids that's really strange but they have to uh know where they're from and a lot of the a lot of them don't even know uh where they're from because they're always from somewhere but never very long. So we're excited uh, to be involved in, in the world job that God has commanded us to go in to all the world and preach the gospel. And the main thing that sometimes gets left out, he says, the remotest parts of the earth. The places where the gospel hasn't been. And that's what the Apostle Paul felt. Uh, he said that, that he endeavored to preach where no other man had preached. That he might not build on another man's foundation. Our purpose in going to the tribes is to, to, uh, take the gospel where, uh, it's never been, and it's a real thrill uh, as we started in our training. We went through our training at Jersey Shore, Pennsylvania, in the boot camp training there. We learned how we can live without all these things that we think we have to have and uh, how uh, you can enjoy it, and really uh, it's a real pleasure being in training with others that are dedicated to the same purpose that you are. And uh, it's fun to go to Baker, Oregon, right near here, and fellowship with those believers are in what we were in training. And this summer they'll have their jungle camp, uh, time. And, uh, it's kind of a cold jungle camp there. Even have ice in the water in the morning when they wake up. Uh, but, uh, it's not that way in the Philippines. It's pretty warm. And, uh, we, uh, appreciated that training that we got because it was a good foundation for what we were going to do. Not all of us end up in a tribal situation as we did. Uh, but our main purpose is that we might take the gospel to the tribes. Uh, the reason we want to go there is because they cannot be reached by radio, by literature, but someone has to go. And it means time. It takes time to learn a language, to understand people who are so much different than you and have such different ideas of life and uh, who are controlled by fear that don't know peace in their heart. They don't know that that Christ is greater than he that's in the world. And still, they, uh, as we started out for our training, uh, as we got in the Philippines the first time there, the Lord gave us an opportunity to talk to Filipinos. It's nice there because you can use a little English and... During the typhoon that hit the Philippines, the hardest one to hit in 100 years, here I was out wandering around the streets like a stupid American, and uh, pieces of tin flying around and parts of buildings and all this sort of thing. And uh, I met these young men in this machine shop right next to our mission home, and I began to talk to them, and I challenged them from the Word of God and what God had done for me. And they said, well, can we get together? I said, sure. Uh, come up tonight and we'll have a little Bible study. And so we had a Bible study. And, uh, one of those young men, young men is now a pastor in Manila. And, uh, he still writes to me. And, uh, I'm a lousy writer. I need to write him back. But, uh, I'm glad that he wants to give, he gave his life to, committed, uh, his life to Christ and to be used for God. And as I, As we go, the Lord makes us witnesses. And when we were in language school, it was Timoteo Kalau, a farmer. We met him, another missionary uh, uh, that was in language school. And after he left, I discipled Timoteo. And uh, then he went back to his village, and uh, he told all his cousins and all his friends, and uh, his life was changed. One day his son said... uh, Timoteo used to just talk about cockfighting, about women, and drinking. He says now all he wants to talk about is the Lord, and uh his life was changed, and it caused uh, his others and his family to change. And they, when I go there, uh, they ask me just to teach them. I just constantly teaching them. They just hunger for someone to come and teach. So there's people like that in the world that we can that want to hear the gospel. Here you have to beat on their head to get their attention, and it's, it's exciting because you know you're out where, where it really counts. Uh, then out into the tribal area, it's another thing. We learn one language, we learn Tagalog, and then we have to learn a second language. And that's Batak. And it I spent two years, we spent two years there, and uh, we were just beginning to really get the language fairly well. And we could communicate in Batak. Then, uh, and I had a man who was interested, and I began teaching him. He was a believer. Then he went to the other side of the island. And my chances, I hope, to, to get the gospel seemed to fade. But God made uh, has made a way, and two other missionary families are taking our place there, Jim Wilson and Sue Pruitt uh, families. And they are now working there with these people and doing the same thing we did. Uh, we had the work started. Uh, the house and the landing strip was there, and through our uh, chances, the Lord gave us uh, the one Batak lady that was shot, a young lady. Uh, we saved her life, and through that, I think it made a, a real firm contact with those people that that we would help them. So pray for them. We uh, pray that the Batak will also be the missionaries to the other people. They're semi-nomadic. They uh, would be good for evangelism. Because they would like to, if they did uh, get the gospel, they could influence many others. Thank you.